Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Well, let's go ahead and get started. We'll um, be looking at 1 Timothy 3 and 4 tonight, hopefully. Well, we'll see how far we get. All right. Okay, we'll see how far we get. If you slow, there's always somebody to slow us down, you know, in the discussion, you know. No, that's fine. If we, this is a good chapter, really. First Timothy three is just a got a lot of stuff in it. So, yeah, we finished up two. Um, unless you have questions on it, want to go back and talk about it. In fact, what I might do, I might just. Actually, I might do that. I think, you know, we'll just pick up a few things in two before we go on to three, but we won't belabor it. Father, thanks for this night, and I pray that you will guide our discussions and our study tonight. Father, we depend on you and the Holy Spirit to teach us. We realize that we can't understand anything apart from your grace and your insight, and we pray that you grant that to us. And thank you for this day in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, we, uh, we were working in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 and 2 last week. And uh, probably one of the big points of 1 Timothy chapter 1, one of the, the um, big picture points, is to really understand what godly teaching will produce. And you can tell what is good teaching and what is bad teaching by the product. It's sort of like what Christ said, a good tree brings forth good fruit, a bad tree brings, brings forth bad fruit. By their fruit you shall know them. And their fruit, you know, the fruit of a false teacher, a false prophet, can not only be their own deeds and their own actions, but it can also be what they produce in, their, in the people that learn from them. Remember what Christ told the disciples to beware of? Remember he told them beware of the, well, the leaven. What leaven? Of the false teaching of the Pharisees. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And, of course, they immediately said, well, he's mad at us because we didn't buy any bread. And he said, come on. Beware of their teaching. Beware of the leaven of their teaching. What kind of people did the Pharisees produce? What was their character? Ungodly, unbelieving. In particular, what, how, how were they ungodly? In what way? What were the Pharisees always beaten on Christ over? Well, they they were legalistic, weren't they? I mean, all the Pharisees did was go around and congratulate each other on how great and godly they were. I mean, that really was the mark. You know, they go around, pat themselves on the back, and say, I'm glad I'm not like that tax collector over there. I'm glad I'm not like him. And that's that was their attitude. So you look at the fruit that they produced, and the fruit they produced was more ungodly people. What did Christ say? You come to sea and land to make one proselyte, and when you got him, you make him twice the child of hell than you are. That was sort of the direct approach. You know, that wasn't this user-friendly kind of stuff. I mean, that was sort of like calling it as it is. And Christ basically said, you're, you're a child of the devil, and you create people that are twice the child of the devil. 
and it gets worse as time goes on. So when you look at a person, you look at a teacher, a preacher, someone in spiritual authority who teaches, ask yourself, well, what is the character of their life? That's, by the way, a good passage on that would be um, 2 Peter chapter 2, which talks about the character of the false teacher, what they are. They're like hidden reeves, remember? They're like filth scabs. They're like a scab on the skin. They're filth spots. They're wandering stars. I mean, the, the, the Bible doesn't have a lot of nice things. It doesn't have any nice thing to say about a false teacher. But also look at the kind of people they produce. You know, what if, if you're considering going to church, look at the people in the church. Are they, are, are, do they have unfeigned faith? Do they have a good conscience? Do they have love from a pure heart? Or are they a bunch of bickering, backbiting, backstabbing, censorious Christians? If they are, they're not getting the right teaching. Or if they're getting the right teaching, they're not listening very well. So that's the big picture. And then in chapter 2, Paul talks about duties in the church. And again, this is all within the context of the church, local assembly. He's not talking about Sunday school classrooms. He's not talking about individual homes. He's not talking necessarily even about group Bible studies you may have. He's talking about when you gather together as a church, as a local assembly, what should it be like? The men are to pray, lifting up holy hands. The women are to learn, but they're to learn in silence, not teaching. And any way you jump around that and dance around the bush, as I'm sure many people have, you can read probably 50 different versions of what people think this text means. I think the way to understand it is to go back to Hermeneutics 101 and understand it in context and what it's saying. A woman is not to teach or to usurp take, or take authority over a man, but to remain in silence. So in the local assembly, a woman should not preach. Now, should a, is a woman to not say anything at all in a church? Is she not to say anything at all in a church service? What can you speak? Well, yeah, you can teach the women. I think that's, that's, that's certainly something you can do. You certainly teach children, but in the social assembly, let's say in the main church, auditorium, you know, when you gather together for worship, you know, Does the Bible forbid it? No. No, it doesn't, does it? But I'll just give you my understanding of this. I would be uncomfortable having a woman lead worship. Because I think what happens is once you start going, I'm just telling you my personal, okay, my personal understanding. You, you all got to deal with it on your own. I think it's a short step from there to teaching, to preaching, to other things. All right, I just think that, and I think that's borne out historically in the, in the scriptures when you look at the entire Old Testament, the men led the worship in Israel. Um, and if, if you don't force a man to do that, they're not going to do it. I'm telling you, they ain't going to do it. Um, I remember teaching the singles class here and... Uh, one of the things I, you know, 
uh, sort of dictated early on is that when we had outings or, you know, like you go out on socials and do things, I wanted a devotional. You know, you, you get a bunch of people together, they go out and have a good time, and nobody says anything spiritual. It's like, well, what's the difference between that and going to a bar? Nothing. So I wanted to have like a, a devotional, and I said, I want, to, I, want one of, I want the men in the class to lead that. And of course, you know, all the, you know, whatever hit the fan. You know, that was just horrible. You know, what, you know, chauvinistic, whatever. And I was on and on and on. Six months later, all the women came back and said that was the best thing that ever happened. Because for the first time in our class, men did something other than sit there. They wouldn't do anything. They wouldn't go. You know, they all hid, ran, hid for the corners, you know. And finally, the men started doing that, and the women said that was the best thing that ever happened. And it really developed the men, because now all of a sudden, hey, they, they have to do what God's called them to do. They can't just sit around and not do it. But you have to apply this in different ways. That that's, was my decision then. Um, but I, I'm uncomfortable with a woman leading the worship. Can a woman lead in the corporate prayer? You know, I'm uncomfortable there too. Now, can I can I make this the the categorical prohibition from this text that she's not allowed to do that? No, I can't do that. Because you can also make the argument out of what First Corinthians 11, when a woman prays, she's to have her head covered. You know, so I can't make that prohibition. I can't say that's not allowed. I'm just a little uncomfortable with that because I've seen too many places where. After a while, it's, well, what's to keep her from preaching, too? You know, I mean, she prays, she leads the worship, let's have her preach. And it's, it's easy to, to go that way. So that's, that's just my personal um, belief on this. But I do think you can make the case from this text that when it comes to the proclamation of the word in the corporate assembly, that's to be done by the men. I think that is very clear from this text. And I think it's very hard to dance around that. People have done that, but I think it's very difficult to dance around it. You know, I think you're on... Now, here's a question. Can God bless a church where the woman preaches? Yeah, because it's not the woman, it's the word, right? I mean, you get a baboon to stand up and give the... I'm not equating women with baboons. Sorry for my... You can get anybody to stand up, right? And, and you can get an infidel to stand up and read a sermon and people can be saved because it's not him, it's the power of the word that will transform a life. I'm just saying when you look at this text, it's very hard to get away from that. Now what people have done is they've tried to contextualize this. The idea of contextualizing means, well, Paul was just talking to people in Ephesus. It was just for Ephesus. It didn't really apply to any other church. Well, the problem there is twofold. Number one, why do you say this is just to that church and the rest of the book is to all of us? It's kind of tough once you start going that route, which part is for that local church, which part is not, and is global. And usually what happens is it's the parts that you like to be global are global, and the parts that you don't like to be global aren't global, they're local. It's an arbitrary kind of... Thing. There's nothing in the text here that would indicate that this was for this church only. All right, There's nothing here to indicate that. Um, that's something that people would read into the text to make it be that way. Um, others say, well, what was happening is the women were teaching false doctrine, and that's why they were told to learn in silence. In Ephesus, they were teaching false doctrine. Well, 
Are you telling me that all the women taught false doctrine and all the men didn't? See, that, see how, how people try to read into these things, I believe, that aren't there. Um, some say, here, well, going back to the, the contextual problem, the other thing is the woman learning was based not on the fall, but on the creation order. Man was created first, then the woman. And God has also indicated the, the role, the greatest role possible for a woman, which was to raise godly kids. That's the mother's role, basically. Now, that doesn't mean the father doesn't do anything, right? But who has the most influence on children, dad or mom? Well, that's a no-brainer, right? Mom. Mom's there, you know. And that's what I think Paul is saying. She will be saved in childbearing. Saved from what? Well, what was the strike against the woman in verse 14? She was deceived. And again, we generally said, generally, women are more easily deceived than men. Generally. Not in every case, but generally that's the case. Um, you got to deal with this text, folks. However you practice this in your church, in your personal life, and, and that, you got to deal with the text. The text is in the scripture, so you got to deal with it somehow. All right. And I think the the um, the interpretation that this is referring to the corporate assembly within the context of the preaching teaching role in a corporate assembly is also reinforced by chapter 3, which Paul says, this is a faithful saying. Now, what's that? What do we say that was? This is a faithful saying. What is that? Here's, here's a trivia. How many times does that appear in the pastoral epistles? Anybody want to take a yes? Pick a number between 1 and 10. One. Ten. Seven. Five. Five. There's five of them. There's five of them. And basically, basically what it means is everybody knows this. this is a common saying. You know, everybody, everybody in the early church knew this. It was so common that Paul could just say, this is a faithful saying, and everybody says, yeah, yeah, that's a faithful saying. Everybody, everybody accepted this as truth. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good thing. Now, we immediately have to ask ourselves a question. What question would you ask? Observation. What's one of the questions you would ask? If a man desires the office of a bishop, the position of of a bishop, he desires a good thing. What would you ask? Who's the, Who's the bishop? What is a bishop? Right? Well, the word here is episkopos. And it means one who stands over. Here, the Episcopal Church, that's where they derive part of their, their, um, their name from. When you think of bishop, what do you think of? Think of our city, but forget the Bible. And when we say somebody says bishop, what do you think of? Some high muckety muck in a church somewhere, right? 
Um, you got the priest, then you got the bishop, then you got the cardinal, then you got the pope, or I think that's the way it works. All right? But he's some high office. Well, in the New Testament, there wasn't such hierarchies in the church. All right? Who's the head of the church? Christ. What are we all? We're all the body, right? But within a local assembly, what do you have? You have certain under shepherds, all right? So what is a bishop? Well, a bishop is an episcopos, someone who stands over, all right? And there's some other words used to refer to this particular individual in the Bible. One of them was pastor, poemen. And that refers to a shepherd, okay? And then there's also the Greek word presbyteros, which is elder, okay? Now, if you go to um, Acts chapter 20, Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders, all right? Um, he's actually leaving them, traveling over to Jerusalem, And in verse 28, we have a very important verse that helps us understand this office. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. What's that word, do you think? Bishop. <coughs> to shepherd. What's that word? The pastor. The church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Now who is Paul talking to? Well, verse 17, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders, presbyteri, presbyteros of the church. Therefore, presbyteros equals elder. Um, bishop is episcopos. Shepherd is poemen. And a bishop an elder and a pastor are all the same office. They're the same. Per it's referring to the same person. That's just a, a title given, but the, the the biblical terminology is elder. Okay. Now, what does elder refer to? When you say elder, does it mean age necessarily? It's generally. Yeah, you go to you go to you go to Bongo Bongo Africa, and who runs the village? The young guys or the elders? The elders, the, elders, the people with the wisdom, the people mm -hmm. with the experience. So when you look at elder in the New Testament, it's it's not referring as much to age, although that is a factor. It's also referring to spiritual maturity, wisdom. Who do you want to run your church? People who are spiritually mature, or people who are immature? Well, that's a no-brainer. I think you want the the mature people. So elder refers to the maturity, the spiritual maturity component of this person. Okay? So you have, if you look at it here, you have um, you have a, a man, and I'm just going to, I'm going to call him pastor. Okay? The pastor of the church. Or pastor, by the way, in the New Testament, how many pastors did you have in a church? Many. Many. In fact, let me do this. Let's call it elders. That's better. 
Okay? What did Paul call the elders of Ephesus? How many elders were there? Well, we don't know, but there was more than one elder, right? Because it's a plural form, all right? And in fact, the New Testament pattern has multiple elders per church. You didn't have just a single pastor. You had multiple ones, okay? And I think there's good reason for that, and we'll get into that in a little bit, all right? But this particular person, elders, there are three biblical terms that refer to, to this. One of them is the elder, okay? And that refers to the spiritual maturity. Is he a mature person? Is he someone who understands the word of God? You, you don't want somebody to be your pastor that's been a Christian for two months, all right? There needs to be a, a maturing, maturing component to this. All right. Now, there's another word, which is pastor. What does pastor refer to? Shepherd. It's what he does. Okay. Pastor. What he does. Okay. And then there's bishop or episcopos. Okay which refers to the office. Okay? So these are, these are terms that are used, and I think you can technically use them interchangeably in the New Testament, because they all mean the same thing. They're the same person. But the elder refers to the spiritual maturity of the person, his character, what he is. Pastor refers to what he does. And bishop refers to the office, the position. Okay? And in the New Testament church, every church, every local assembly had multiple elders. The pattern was multiple elders. Not one guy who's king taught and you just bow down and whatever he says goes, but multiple elders within a church. Why do you need multiple elders? Why is that a good thing? And many people need different levels of teaching. And they cross-check each other. Accountability, mutual accountability. Mutual accountability. One of the great problems, I think, in small churches is you've got one guy who runs the show and his word is law. Well, what if he's off on something? You ever try to question a pastor in a church like that? It's called a career-limiting move. All right? And it's too easy, quite honestly, it, it's too easy for someone in that position to be unaccountable. I mean, who are they accountable to? Who's going to stand up and say, Pastor, you know, that interpretation of Scripture is wrong? Well, you know, he's the expert, right? He's the one that should know. Who are you to question me? What about the deacons? Why, why can't they hold him? We're going to talk about, I'm talking about the biblical pattern. The biblical pattern. Now, in some churches, you do have the deacon board that does that, all right? I'm talking about the biblical pattern. Churches had elders, multiple elders. 
primary examples right here in Acts 20. Paul called who? The elders of the church of Ephesus. There wasn't one elder. There were many elders in the church of Ephesus. How many? Well, we don't know. There's no set number. But I think in all of our churches, you would recognize that there are probably five, six, seven individuals that have the spiritual maturity and the leadership skills and the teaching ability to be an elder and to help shepherd the flock. Now, what does he do as a shepherd? What's his job? Well, if you go back to Acts 20, all right, there, there, there are three major jobs that he is to do. One of them is he's to feed, right? He's to feed the flock. What does he feed the flock? The Word. The Word of God. Paul says, I have not shunned to clear unto you the whole counsel of God. That's why, just as an aside, that's why I think expository preaching is the most, I think it's probably the only valid mode of preaching. Instead of this topical business. If you're a topical preacher, what happens? What topics do you pick? The ones you want, or the ones you like. Yeah. You ever, you know, guys that get on their hobby horse and ride around the platform every Sunday? They're always talking about the same thing, or some form of, or some form of the same thing. Well, exegetical preaching makes you got to take the next verse, whatever it is, you got to deal with that, and that and that forces you to declare everything that God has declared. You can't. Take the parts you like and forget about the parts you don't. Now, that doesn't mean you can't preach a topical sermon on that. That's not the point. But the point is, over the course of your ministry as an elder, the best way to do it is to pick a book, start at the beginning, work your way through the end. That way you're declaring exactly what God has written down. You're not skipping the parts that you don't like or they're a little bit tough or something that you're uncomfortable with. you got to deal with the whole thing. All right? So one of the jobs of the pastor, elder, bishop, is they are to feed the flock. And they're to feed the flock the word of God. They're not to feed them their own opinions. All right? They're to feed them the word of God. And their authority is derived from where? From the word of God. Yeah, their authority is, is derived from the word. I have no authority other than what that gives me. None. None. And the pastor should have no authority in the church other than what the scripture gives him. Now you may grant him other things as the pastor. I'm not talking about that. But, but his authority, the authority of the elder is derived from the word of God. The other thing he has to do is to lead the flock. Right? How does he lead them? By example. You lead them by example. He should be the model Christian in the church. And if he wants to have he if he wants you all to be patient, what does he need to do? He needs to be patient. If he wants you to be gracious, he needs to be gracious. All right? If he wants you to give sacrificially, he should give sacrificially. The whole point is you lead and you lead by example. All right? And where do you lead the flock of God? To spiritual maturity. You lead them according to the Word of God. You don't pull a Jim Jones and take them out in the jungle and have them drink poison grape juice or whatever it is. You 
lead the flock. All right? And then there's another component that you read about in Acts 20. You weed the flock. What do you mean by weeding? Well, if you feed them the Word of God and you lead them, what's going to happen once in a while? Who's going to show up in your church? Well, Satan is going to show up, and who's he usually show up as? A false teacher, a false prophet, false doctrine. Part of your job, if you're an elder, part of your job is to protect the flock from false teaching. Think of a shepherd. I mean, this all derives out of this pastor-shepherd motif. As a shepherd, what is your job? Your job is to find good pasture for the sheep. Your job is to lead them into the, the right way. And your job is to keep them from danger, from getting into the wrong stuff, eating loco weed. That's part of your job as a pastor. Sometimes as a pastor, you need to stand up and say, you know, this doctrine is floating around and it's wrong, and this is why it's wrong. You derive your authority from the Word of God. You need to show your flock, hey, you need to stay away from this stuff because this is bad news. That's part of your job as a teacher, as a, as a preacher. All right? So it's, it's, a great, it's a great job, but there's a tremendous amount of responsibility because as it says in 1 Peter 5, 4, you're an under-shepherd. You're not an overlord. You're an under-shepherd. Okay? 1 Peter 5, 4. You're an under-shepherd. Who's the chief shepherd? Christ. Christ is. And when he shows up, you're going to have to give an account of how you've dealt with the flock. Whose flock is it? Yours? Christ. It's Christ. If you're a pastor, you can't say, this is my church and I'll do as I please in it. Oh, well, now wait a minute. It's not your church. It's God's church. It's not your church. It's God's church. This open door is not, you know, open door is not my church. This isn't my church. It's God's church. Now, I happen to go here, but it, I, it doesn't belong to me. And yet, sometimes pastors get the idea, this is my church. I will lead as I want. And they are treated like royalty. Now, are you to respect your elders? Yes. Yes, but... Why did you say that? Yes, you are to respect them, but they're not to lord it over. Peter talks about that. Don't lord over the flock. They're not your flock. Don't lord over them. In fact, what did Christ... It's interesting. Christ, he was talking... You know, the disciples, they were arguing about who's going to be greatest, right? They're all arguing, fighting... You know, I'm going to sit on the right hand. No, I am. No, I am. I'm going to sit right now. I'm, they're all fighting about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Christ says, you know, among the kingdom of the Gentiles, you have people over other people, right? You have various levels of leadership. You have various levels of government. But he says, among you, it's not to be. He who is greatest should be servant of all. It's an upside-down org chart. The one who's in spiritual leadership is the one who really serves all. He's not to be served. He is to serve. And Paul talks about the character of this one who is to be this pastor. Now, it's interesting as you go through this text, 
Let me ask this. Let me ask this. How do you choose a pastor? And if you haven't, if you've not been on a search committee or something, you know, um, pretend you are, how, how would you choose a pastor? There's always got to be someone to ruin the class, but but anyways, no. I, how do mo I'm joking with you? How do most people choose pastors? Okay, you you find somebody who's a good what? Speaker. Find somebody who's a good speaker. All right. The last thing you want is the guy who's going to put people sleep in a pew. All right. Got to have a good speaker. If he has a few jokes, that's even better. All right. What else you want? He can sing. Ah, he can sing. <laughs> okay, well, see, that eliminates me from ever being a pastor. That's a good thing. What else? Huh? Credentials. All right. And what do you mean by credentials? Well, experience, right? Experience. How about education? You know, does he have any education? What else? Finances? Possibly. His family life. Godly is thrown in there. Some throw that in. Reputation. Is is he well known? Character. Now, quite honestly, folks, rank them. Pretend, pretend you do an, you know, you just go to the average person in the church. What do they think is most important? Not you, but the average person in the church. What would they rate? Presentation. Yeah, this this would be this would be one of the A, you know, that'd be one of the A one levels. Credentials is a big one. I mean, you know, see, yeah, Doctor Muckety Muck, you know, or something like that. What else is sort of up there? Possibly. Reputation. You know, is he well known? And, you know, I, I don't want to belabor this, but other things sort of float. Is he a good fundraiser? Down the, yeah, can he, can, can, he, can, he, can he raise money? You know, that's a good one, you know. Can he raise the money to run the church? Okay. That's another one. Now, as you read First Timothy... What does First Timothy say the character or the, the, the credentials are for an elder? What do they relate to? Any of this stuff? It relates to this mainly. Character. Now, your family life is is a, is an offshoot of your character. The point here is this, folks. The Bible has it the opposite of the way we think. When we look for a pastor, we're looking for externals. We're looking for someone who's a good speaker, someone who can raise money, someone who's engaging, someone who has a good personality, all this other stuff. The Bible says, forget that. What's he like? What's a good example of this in the Bible? Old Testament. Huh? David. David. Remember Samuel shows up to anoint the king and Jesse brings in all of his sons and which ones did he bring in? 
All the old ones. You know, the good-looking one. This is it. Nope. This is uh, 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 you know. Finally, none of them fit the bill. And Samuel says, well, it ain't any of these. You got any other? Yeah, he's out with the sheep, you know. But he's not one. That was the one, right? And what made David accept it over his brothers? His character. He was a man after God's own heart. All right? That's what he was. The, the folks, the point is this. The Bible says the number one characteristic that you want to find in a shepherd, a pastor, is his character. Everything else is icing on the cake. If he's a good speaker, well, that's great. But if he's got bad character, he can be a good speaker with bad character, right? Mm -hmm. and, and you see that as we go through these criteria here. So we're going to work our way down through the criteria for an elder. We're going to see that borne out. Does this make any sense so far? Now, I happened to be on the search committee for our church when, when we chose um, our current pastor, Jim Minling. And I would have to say that our primary focus on the church committee was character. And wrapped up with character, one alone we haven't listed up, which we probably should. In fact, this is this is this is goes right hand in hand with character. It's our, it's assumed here, but it, it goes in there, is his doctrine. You know? I mean you can get a guy with great character who's a Mormon. You know, you don't want him as your pastor. You know, so the point is you want someone who, who knows the Word of God and who accurately preaches the Word of God. That's, that's very necessary as well. But you want someone with character. And what we looked at is we looked at someone with character who knew the Word of God. And then other factors played in experience. All right, you don't want to bring someone in who's going to be the senior pastor of a church. This is his first pastorate. They're not ready. Can they be ready someday? Yes. Yeah. Someday. See, when I was growing up, I think one of the dangers I saw was, um, you know, I, I, I grew up in a church with the mentality as, well, we're going to get some guy out of college, out of Bible college, we'll make him our pastor. Is he ready to be a pastor? No. 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 He's not. Straight out of Bible. In fact, he's got to unlearn all the bad stuff he learned in college and seminary before he's ready to be a pastor. You don't want him to be a pastor. Can he potentially be one? Sure. Well, sure. But he's not ready to be an elder yet. In fact, it's quite possible there are men in the church that are much more godly than he is. He may know a little bit more theology, but look, character is, it, is the issue. Character is the issue. And what you're going to see here is all the descriptions that Paul uses to talk about this man is character character. There's only one non-character um, characteristic. And we'll see if we, I'm going to see if you all can figure that out as we go along. There's only one characteristic of the elder that's not related directly to character. Okay?
And what Paul is saying, he's saying this is a faithful saying, if you desire this office, you desire a good thing. Now immediately I have to say, well, wait a minute. Who's the egotistical person that would desire an office like this? Right? The very fact, in fact, in some people's minds, the very fact that someone would want to be a pastor disqualifies them from being a pastor because of ambition. Right? I mean, that's a possibility. That's way, one way to look at this. Well, how would you answer that? Well, let me ask a question. Did Paul want to be a? Did he Paul want to be an apostle? Did Paul want to be an apostle? No, he That's the last thing on his mind. I think I'm. I'm just being honest with you. I'm thinking that the man who is called to be an elder will try to do everything he can to not be one. But in the end, that's a compelling call on his life. That is a subjective thing. How can you know if a man is called to be a pastor? How can you know that? Some guy walks up and says, hey, I'm called to be a pastor. How do you know that? How do you know somebody's called? Well, what would you look at? Character, right? If someone says, I'm called to be a pastor, but he, he's a, you know, he's a womanizer. Out. Disqualified, right? Someone's called to be a pastor, but he's a felon and he doesn't think anything about passing bad checks. Out, you know. You, you, that's a good question. That is a good question. Where did the New Testament church get their elders? From the congregation. From the congregation. So where is the best place to find an elder for your church? Why? Because you've been able to look at that person for a long period of time and you've been able to figure out if they're qualified or not, right? That's the best way to get a pastor. Some of the best pastors we've had here at, 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 um, at uh, Open Door are the ones that grew up in our church. We've seen them. We've seen them as little kids. They've grown up and they've gone, you know, they've come back and we've seen them grow and we know what they're like. It's all character, folks. That doesn't mean you can't hire someone from the outside. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying generally in the New Testament where they got their elders was within the church, within the congregation. Is it okay for a man to desire a good thing? Yes. By the way, who's desiring this, man or woman? The man. The man. I believe that this text clearly says that the office of an elder is reserved solely for men. If a man desires, it doesn't say if anyone desires, right? The Holy Spirit could have said that if he wanted to, right? If the Holy Spirit wanted to open this up to anybody, he could have said, well, if anyone desires this office, they desire a good thing. No. It's not they, it's all male pronouns used throughout this text. Now some would say, well, you know, that's just Paul accommodating the misogamist view of his day, the woman-hating view of his Look, you know, 
Who wrote this? Paul or the Holy Spirit? All right, now you got to argue with the Holy Spirit now, all right? Because if the Holy Spirit wanted women to, to be in this office, what would he have said? Whether Paul hated them or not, he would have said it. He would have said it. Folks, he would have said it. He didn't. Okay? If a man desires it, he desires a good work. It's an honorable work to be an elder. And that desire, I think, comes from the calling of God on your life. How did Timothy know he was called to be an elder? He was for God's grace by godly parents. And, and there were some prophecies, remember, back when he, him. about him? How did Paul know? Well, God showed up to Paul personally. And I think if, and, one, and then one of the things we asked every you know, we interviewed a few people for the pastor of this church. We asked them, how do, how do you know you're called? How do you know you're called? What were some of the answers to that? We got good answers. Most of them were, I have a desire to preach and teach and lead people in a deeper understanding and a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, I have a desire to do that. And whether I'm paid to do it or not, I'm going to do it. You know, it's a subjective thing. I can't talk, I can't look at you and say you're called or you're not called. I don't know that. But God has laid a burden on some people to do this. And that's what he's saying here. The desire does not spring from selfish ambition. The desire springs from God's calling on that person's life. Because if it's selfish ambition, he is disqualified from the get-go. Because his character is not in line. So if he desires this, it's a good thing. So what must he be like? What is the character of this particular man? Well, it says he must be blameless. What's that mean? That's a good word, blameless. Well, what does it mean there? What does it not mean? It doesn't mean you're sinless, right? Because everybody's out, right? So it can't mean that you're perfect. It can't mean that you're sinless. All right. The idea of blameless it means not able to be held. It means that there's no glaring um, character flaw evident that would that would that would prevent you from being that okay it doesn't mean faultless it means blameless it means that this man as best as he can lives in an upright godly honest relationship before people with God he he there there's there's no you can't say when, when his name comes I say oh yeah he's the guy that has a bad temper Oh, oh yeah, he's the guy that cheated on his taxes. Oh, I know him. He's the guy that was on the news because he beat up his neighbor because of... It's blameless, all right? Why do you think that's necessary? Got to lead by example. And what will Satan and ungodly people do to you if you're not blameless? Never let you forget it. Think of the politics now. 
What's going on? If you could nail them on anything, what will you do? You'll nail them and disqualify them, and hopefully to disqualify them, you'll disqualify their message. If a man is not blameless, it gives the devil an opening to discredit God's word. Was Paul blameless? No. Well, not in the beginning. Was Paul blameless? Apostle Paul. He had to be. Of course he is. All right. Now, was he sinless? No. No, because you know he lost his temper now and then, and you know I'm sure that there were other things he did that were, you know, that were sins. But but as best as he could, what did he do? He tried to live a godly, upright life. Saul wasn't. Saul wasn't. All right. The point is, folks, if you're a man who's called to be an elder, and you're living a life of sin, you're not called to be an elder. Not until you deal with what? Your sin. Let me ask a question. Let's say um, you're a murderer. Can a murderer be a pastor? Yeah, because he could repent. Yes, he could. He could repent. Paul! Disqualify him. Yeah, of course. Now, he can't be a murderer while he's pastor, right? How about an adulterer? Could he become a pastor? Sure. How about a drug addict? How about a dope pusher? Sure. All of them. Now, that's not the character of your life now, but it could be that in the times past that was your character. So how would you know if that person's blameless? How would you, how would you determine that? You can watch to see how they carry themselves. And how long should you watch? A long time. It depends, right? It depends. Anybody can be good for six months. It's kind of hard to be good for six years. Or ten years. One of the things, and this goes back to folks, you know, Paul says, lay hand suddenly on no man. I think... In, in chapter 5, he says, lay hands suddenly on no man. He's saying, don't be so quick to make somebody an elder because, you know, you might be partakers of their sins. You know, you, don't be so quick to bring to, to lift them up. you got to watch them. you got to observe them. you got to know them. And if somebody's coming in from the outside, what should you do? You should go visit where they came from. Go visit where they came from. You know what we did when, when we interviewed our current pastor? We got, we, we, we interviewed people in his hometown that he, was, he worked with. We talked to them. We interviewed them. We interviewed people in the civic, he, he did some stuff on civic boards there. We interviewed the people that were in the government and asked them, said, well, tell us about this guy. We're thinking about him being passed. What, do you, what can you tell us about him? We, we got even a credit report on him. I mean, the last thing you want is somebody who's been bankrupt six times to be your pastor. That's probably not a good thing, right? All right. The whole point is you want somebody who's blameless. The idea here is that there's no glaring fault you can nail on the guy. It's not that he's sinless, but there's nothing glaring and obvious that, that just pops to your head every time you think of this guy. Just bang. Oh, he's whatever. Okay. And then it says here, the husband of one wife. Now, I'll tell you, that is kicked around all over the place. All right? People beat that one to death. 
The actual Greek text means a one-woman man. That's the actual Greek text. And I think MacArthur does an excellent job in his commentary discussing that. The idea of being a one-woman man is that you are a man devoted to your wife. All right. Can you be divorced and be a pastor? Sure. Some churches. Now, some churches are legalistic. Say, oh, wait a minute. One woman, he's divorced. He can't be a pastor. There's some Baptists that believe that. Can't be a pastor. Look, they can make that up. Because I would ask them, I said, um, so let me ask you a question. You know, this guy here, you know, let's say he murdered some people and he was pardoned and he's a pastor. Now, oh, great, wonderful grace of God. Wonderful grace of God, you know. This other guy here, he was a drug addict. Yeah, yeah, he was a drug addict, sold drugs, and God transformed his life, and he's the pastor now. This guy over here, it, his wife ran off on him, left him for another man. Yeah, he's disqualified, never going to be a pastor. What's wrong with that? There's something wrong with that picture, isn't there? Why is it that divorce is the unpardonable sin? I'll tell you what, I'd much rather be divorced than be a murderer. If I had to pick the two, which one would you pick? That's not what this verse is saying. What this verse is saying is that this man is to be totally devoted, singularly, to his wife. So that means you, you should not have a single pastor young single pastor. Didn't say that, did it? What if he's not married? No, what if he's not married? Was Paul married? No, he goes through the church. The young women in the church. Well, you got other character problems that come in and deal with that. You know, and and there there may be some wisdom in that. I I agree. But what if his wife dies? What if the past with the man is called to be your pastor and he's 30 years old and his wife dies. You disqualify him, you fire him because now he's not a one-woman man? No, he was already our pastor and his wife died? Yeah. No, but you know, you know something about his character. It does go back. I'm saying, I'm saying God, God, what, what you're seeing here is here's, here's the Here's the standard. Now, we've got all the exceptions and all the what-ifs and what-abouts and, oh, well, what happens? Look, here's the standard. A one-woman man. If he is married, he is to be devoted to his wife. If he is unmarried, he should not be chasing every woman in the church. Can you be, can you be married and not a one-woman man? Yes. How? Oh, yeah. How? How? Adultery. Adultery. Well, how else? How else? Pornography. Pornography. There may be there may be men, pastors, pastors today. There are a lot of pastors that have never committed adultery. But by, I'll tell you what, when it comes to the magazines and the porn videos and things like that, they have real problems. And the internet, they have real problems. They're not a one woman man. They are not a one woman man. Ask Seth. Seth deals with some of these people all the time who come in, they're pastors, and they're, they're addicted to pornography. They're, not, they're disqualified. They're not one-woman man. 
Bible says the man who is the elder of the church, who is the pastor, who is the spiritual leader, is to be devoted to his wife. That is the only woman in his life. That doesn't mean he ignores the existence of other people. It just means he is devoted singularly to her and not to other women. Now that has some ramifications. As a pastor of a church, should you be counseling women? They don't allow it in our church alone. No. No. Howard Hendricks was here. He did it. He said he had a survey of 170 some odd pastors that, no, it was 200. 200 pastors that fell into sexual immorality. He, 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 he had this little research project going. He interviewed 200 pastors that fell in immorality. 170 plus of them fell in because they counseled women one on one. That's bad news. All right. The point is, you don't. Who does that? Titus. The older women are to teach the younger women. That's now you want to you want to be a woman and you want to teach in the church. You want that's what you need to be doing because we don't have that in our churches today. We don't have that. Where do women in the church today figure out how to raise their kids? Where do they get that? They get it from television. They get it from the soap operas, right? They get it from TV. They get it from the, you know, the magazines or whatever it is, Cosmo or all that other. That's where they get it. They don't get it from other godly women. And what are they telling them? Are they telling them to love their husbands? No. <clears throat> are they telling them to love their children? No. No. Are they telling them to be keepers at home? Oh, my gosh, no. That's an illegitimate occupation. You've got to have space. You've got to have a career. Right? You got to find yourself. You don't want to be a, you're just a housewife. Ew. You know? Where do you need to get that? You need to get that from the older women. The Bible says the man, the elder, is to be totally devoted to his wife. She's the only one. And if he violates that, he's disqualified. Period. Can he ever be restored? Yes. How easy is that? Very easy. It, has, it won't be in my generation or the one that's It might be in the third generation. Very hard. Yes. It has to. Very hard. I don't see it. Now, there are some, like, for example, I think Dr. MacArthur, in his, I think maybe in his commentary mentioned it, that he believes if a man falls in immorality, he's forever disqualified as an elder. Mm -hmm. All right? I, I can't I can't derive that from this text. What I can derive is that the path back is a very difficult and long and arduous path. It is not, oh gee, I'm sorry. Okay, you know, come back and preach next time. No, we're talking about years. Because what does he have to do now? He's got to correct his character. Then what has he got to do for a period of time? He's got to get back to the blameless spot, right? He's got to work his way back to that. That takes years. And, you know, quite honestly, he may never be able to do that in the church that he is in. But it will take years. It's serious. Why is that? Because he is to be the model. And we are way too lenient on these guys that fall into immorality. We want to immediately bring them back. Well, why? Well, they're a good speaker. You know, they keep the church budget going. That's no reason to make them a pastor. 
I'm just saying, look, folks, you got to deal with these. The text. The text says he used to be a one-woman man. He used to be temperate. What's temperate mean? He used to be clear-headed. The Greek word actually means wineless. He used to think clearly. All right. He's not to be swayed and and easily pushed all over the map. He's to think with clarity. And and where does he get his clarity? Where does he get that? From the Word of God. He's to be able to think clearly and accurately on things. He's not to be bouncing all over the map. He's to be a, one of one of them here. The, um, some some of the, the the character traits that goes along with this, like being alert, being watchful, being vigilant. As a pastor, you need to watch out for what? The wolves that are trying. And look, no sooner does one wolf come in, one wolf come in and get... <laughs> Speaking of wolves... It's a miracle. I'm late. <laughs> no sooner does a wolf walk in than he sits down. I have been looking for me. I saw her car. Uh, no. no sooner does one wolf go in and out the door than another one comes in. And as an elder, you need to watch out for these people. That's part of your job, to watch. What did the shepherd do in the old days when they were out in the flocks, you know, and the flocks were eating away, munching on the grass? What did the shepherd do? He had to keep watch for the predators that would come to spoil the flock. An elder needs to be watchful. He needs to be alert. He's not to be asleep at the helm. Sober-minded. What does it mean to be sober-minded? Well, we got we got that coming up a little later, not given to wine. Sober-minded, I think, has the idea of discipline and priorities. And, and sober means you think seriously about things. And if you think seriously about things, what do you do to things that are not important? You don't deal with them, right? You deal with what is important, what is essential. You, you have a focus on the things that are necessary. And I've known pastors and preachers, they get all off on all these little rabbit trails and they're all over the place and, 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 it, and they're not focused. Now, if Paul was anything, he was focused, wasn't he? In fact, sometimes he was too focused, you might think. He was so driven and single-minded. But... Look, you've got to be sober. You, you don't want your pastor to be wandering all over the map. You want him to be able to think clearly and be able to prioritize what is important and what isn't important. You don't want him doing things that are unimportant. And then it says here, of good behavior. What does it mean to be good behavior? The Greek word is orderly. Greek word means orderly. What's the opposite of order? Chaos. Right? One of the things you want to do is you look at a pastor is you want to say, let's look at his life. Is he living an orderly, disciplined life? It doesn't mean he's a control freak. That's not what it's talking about here. Alright? But 
For example, if you walk into a pastor's house and it looks like the cyclone hit it, what does that tell you about him? It may be his wife, but... That doesn't mean that the pastor's house has to be spotlessly clean. That's not what it's talking about. It should be neat. He should be ordered. He should be disciplined. You know? That's another thing, showing up on time. Is he on time to meetings? Is he, when he says, I'll be there at 3 o'clock, does he show up at 3.15? It, it, it's not talking about being spotless and perfect and nothing out. It's just say, generally in his life he needs to be orderly. Why is that necessary? Why did he put that in there? He's saying, Paul, you're being picky. Good night, you know. Being picky. The reflection of one's internal state. You got it. You have a grip on it's a reflection. Folks, listen. Here's what Paul's trying to get at. The way you live your life externally is a reflection of what you are internally. It would be hard to tell me something if you were a slob. If I am a total slob, and you came over to my house, this is the pastor's house, and you walk down the street, and it's the one with the bushes are overgrown, and all the litter's in the yard, and the shrubs are uncut, and the house is falling apart, and the screen door's off the hinges. This is the pastor of our church. Come visit our church. See ya. Bye. <laughs> I'll go to the Catholic one down the street. I'm not going to go to your church. It's a reflection. It's a reflection of himself. And you say, well, that's unfair that God is so you know, that's unfair that you, you'd be so hard about, you know, looking at his house and his... Look, it's a reflection of what you are. I'm telling you, it's a reflection of what you are on the inside. It's a reflection. If you live a chaotic life and, and there's total chaos all around you, how are you going to manage the church? How are you going to run the church? It's also a reflection of respect. And they say, I feel Yeah. Now you'll walk into our house probably any time of the day and it's clean. It's not spotless, but it's clean. And I like it that way because I like order in my life. I don't like total chaos. All right? Because I have the sense of being ordered and logical and, and, and and that re that's reflected in the way I live. I had a friend of mine who walked in his house. It was total. It was. If I tried, I couldn't make my house as messy as his. If I tried, I couldn't do that. You were speechless there I remember going to his house, and he had to take the gar. He had a garbage can by the by. It was full, and there were three piles on the floor of garbage piling up. He just never got around to taking the garbage out. And I say, what's wrong? What well, you know, who are you to tell me how to live my life? Blah, 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 blah. You know, it's all like, what is it? His problem was he had a chaos in his life. It's totally chaos, totally undisciplined. It also shows undisciplined, right? Yeah. This man was totally undisciplined. Absolutely undisciplined. You'd ask him where his clothes are, and well, they you know, got five or six piles in the room. And it's in one of those piles. I don't know what pile it's in. It's over here somewhere. It's a, Well, it's one of those, what you need to do is you need to get one of those big garb dumpsters and just clean the house out and dump it all in there and start over again. I mean, it was so messy. But, but the whole point is it showed a lack of discipline in his life, a lack of respect for people. 
when I walk into his house, I, you know, I had to make sure my life insurance was paid up. <laughs> you never know what you're going to walk into or what you're going to hit or are you going to fall through the floor. You know, you never know. He's the one who got evicted from the trailer park. Oh, All right. But it, it's, the whole point here is a, is a man, there's, there's an orderliness about it because he is an example of Christ. He's an example of Christ. That doesn't mean when you walk down the road, his house isn't so ornately garish and all perfect. And it, that's not what it's talking about, but it looks orderly. It's not overgrown with weeds. It's not run down. It's not total chaos. Then it says here he's to be hospitable. What does that mean? That's stranger lover. He's to love aliens. Why is he to love aliens? Christ loved them. He was a friend of sinners. He was a friend of the common. When you walk into the pastor's house, you should feel welcome. That doesn't mean every time you walk in, there, there are certain socially appropriate times to walk in and not. But when the pastor has people over, you need to be welcome. You need to feel welcomed in the house. You need to feel like he wants you there. Should the pastor have you over? Should he? If he wants to. Should he? Well, if it's a female, it better be in a group. Well, yeah, you know, there's... It doesn't mean that the pastor, you know, any time, any day of the, day of the... Any time of the night or day, you can just walk into the pastor's house, and that's not what it's talking about here. But generally, he's to be a hospitable person, and he's to be friendly and outgoing and to love people. If you've got a pastor who's antisocial, you've got a problem. He's not qualified to be the elder. He needs to be friendly towards people. And especially in those days when you needed that. I mean, how are you to reach people for Christ if you're unfriendly and unwelcoming and turn people away? You're to be hospitable. He's to be able to teach what? Yeah. Implied is the word. It's not just that he could teach things. He's an elder, a pastor needs to be someone who can preach and teach the word of God. So if somebody says, I'm called to be a pastor, and he is an abysmal preacher, teacher, is he called to be a pastor? No. That doesn't mean he is not called to do other things, right? But one of the things that the elder needs to be able to do is he needs to be able to teach the Word of God because that is where he derives his authority and that is what he uses to feed, to lead, and to weed. And if he can't do that, he's not called to be the elder. you got to be able to teach the Word of God. And implied in teaching is that you know it, that you're able to apply it, that there's some wisdom and knowledge there that you're able to use it. He's to be able to teach. It doesn't mean he's the greatest speaker on the planet, but he can speak. That says here, not given to wine. What do you think that means? Um, does it say does it say he's not allowed to drink alcohol? No. That's only the Baptist preachers, all right? They're not allowed to drink at all. Does given imply an addiction? Yes. Yes. 
the, 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 he's not to be a wine lover. And, and by the way, some of these are comparative in Titus chapter 1. You can go over to Titus 1 and get some indications here to help you understand what he's talking about here. Paul is saying he is not one who is given over to alcohol. All right. In those days, now, now when it talks about wine, you've got to understand what it means about wine. Wine in the Bible is not wine you get when you go out and eat dinner today. When you go out and eat dinner today, I'm told that the wine is about 11% alcohol, somewhere around in that range, maybe a little higher, somewhere around, it's about 11%. It's, you know, you don't have to drink a lot of it to get a little tipsy, all right? In those days, the wine was probably 1% alcohol. How long would you have to drink that wine to get drunk? Well, yeah, remember what they said at Pentecost. He said, wait a minute, it's only the first part. That we're drunk already? That doesn't make any sense. You have to drink a long time to get high in those days. Because the, because the wine was very low alcohol content. In fact, there was just enough alcohol in it to kill the bacteria, and that's about the extent of it. Their water wasn't Yeah, you don't drink the water. You drink the wine, all right? But what this is saying is if you've got a pastor who's given over to wine, what happens when you drink too much? Your impairment, you get impaired. You're under the control of. Now, by extension, what can you extend this to be today? Drugs. Anything that controls him. If you've got a man who's supposedly the pastor and he's known as a guy who likes to grab a cold one with the boys and get a little loud and rowdy on Friday night, that's not the example that he's to be. He's to not be given away. It does not say he's not allowed to drink a glass of wine. It doesn't say that. So you can't make the prohibition against it. All right, but let me ask you a question. Is it a wise thing for the pastor, the elder, to drink? Probably not. Now, what if he, okay, what if he's a pastor in Germany? He has no choice. It's almost daily there. everywhere. But what I'm trying to point out here is there is, I think arguably, a cultural component. All right. Now, if the Holy Spirit wanted to prohibit drinking, what would he have said? No drinking. I mean, that's that simple. The Holy, you know, got, that's a good hermeneutic. The Holy Spirit could have said it if he wanted to. If the Holy Spirit wanted to give you the idea that this man was to not be divorced, he could have said that. There was a word used. Instead, it said one woman man. It didn't say divorced, it said one woman man. If he would have wanted divorce, and he wanted, that would have solved all the argumentation if he just used the right word. He didn't use it. He used one woman man. If he wanted to prohibit drinking, he could have easily done that. We would not be discussing this. He didn't. He said you're not given to wine. And it is a cultural thing. In America, is drinking seen basically positively or negatively? Negative. Negatively. So in America, it's probably the best decision not to drink at all. That way no one can think you're an alcoholic. If you go over to the pastor's house and you open up and you've got, you know, a, a fridge full of booze, 
Is that going to affect the way you think of your pastor? Yeah. All right. Now, the guy may not be drunk at all. He may never be drunk a day in his life, but it's going to affect the way you think of him. It's going to impact negatively his ability to minister to the flock. But now, if you walk over to Germany, over there, drinking is not seen negatively at all. Being drunk is, but having a beer with your meal, everybody does. So over there, it's a different cultural context. The prohibition here is not against drinking alcohol, it's being drunk. You're not to be drunk. And I think also you can make by extension not to be a drug addict. You're not to be addicted to substances. Now let me throw another one in here and we'll, we'll, we'll have fun with this one. Uh, what about cigarettes? Would that fall principally under this? By principle under this? I think you can make an argument too of the fact that yes it is. <coughs> Yes, Every time he had a little crusty lit up. Yeah. Yeah. Now, cult, now, is that a cultural thing? What? No. What? Was that a cultural thing, like, like alcohol? Addiction is addiction. Addiction is addiction, but... Anybody know who Charles Haddon Spurgeon was? Boy, he loved a good cigar. He loved a good cigar. But see, he lived in 1880 in England, where it was fashionable to smoke a cigar now and then. Nobody thought anything of it back then. They didn't know about lung cancer. They didn't know about it. They didn't. It was okay. So there is a cultural component to that as well. Now, since we're out of time, I'm going to stop there. But the next thing I'm going to ask about is eating. Does that fit in here too? Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.